this is about a bigger story. The reason it starts that way, the whole story of creation with the creation of a man and the creation of a woman and a marriage, the reason history starts that way is because history will end that way. Hey, hey, welcome to the Live Like It's True podcast, where we talk through some of the most astonishing stories in the Bible and how to live like those stories are true. I'm your host, Shannon Popkin, and my hope is that these conversations will inspire you to better know the story, share the story, and live the story. Why do the weeds grow and the flowers die? Why is there cancer and murder and divorce? How did everything get so bent and broken? And why, even when my life is full, do I feel like something is missing? The answers to these questions are found not in some lengthy discourse, but in a relatively short story about a man and a woman who once lived in a beautiful garden where they walked and talked with God. But then they ate the forbidden fruit and God drove them out into the wilderness. This story is the one that we're in. It's our origin story, and it helps us to make sense of both the curses and the consequences that we're experiencing. And at the same time, it stirs up a longing in us for our new creation home. So let's take a look at the true story of the beginning found in Genesis 1-3 through and think through what the story is teaching us and how to live like the story is true. I've been married for 26 years now, and I'm so grateful for the good, faithful husband that God has given me. But even though I think we have a really good marriage, we haven't always been good to each other. I still remember the day. In a moment of rage, I threw my wedding ring across the floor. I was trying to express my hostility toward my husband, and oh boy, did it work. I still cringe when I think of not only how that ring looked bouncing across the floor like some worthless little trinket, but also the look on my husband's face when I did it. He was mad, and rightly so. When I think back, like he designed that ring especially for me. He educated himself on diamonds, and he chose a stone that was highly rated. He paid a huge sum of money for this ring. But it's the marriage that he's actually spent his life on. The reason that the image of that ring bouncing across the floor is so disturbing to both of us is because the ring represents something more precious than just diamonds or gold. Yeah, the the ring is valuable, of course, but our marriage is even more valuable. Now think about this with me. Marriage is actually like a wedding ring. It represents something greater and more valuable than the marriage itself. Yes, marriage is valuable, but in the same way that diamonds and gold aren't as valuable as the marriage itself, marriage is not as valuable as what it represents. Marriage was particularly designed by God to represent a relationship between Christ and the church. Think about the great bride cost for this marriage. Think about Christ, the one of infinite value to God, giving his life so that this union would even be possible. And so think about the implications. When our culture becomes hostile toward marriage between a man and a woman, it's like taking the ring of marriage, which is you know what God designed, and throwing it down and watching it skid across the floor like a, like a worthless trinket. Think about the bride, the church herself, throwing down this symbol. Can you imagine the pained look of the bridegroom? 
We're going to jump in here in just a moment to my conversation with Mary Cassian, and it is such an important conversation. We're going to not only consider marriage, but what marriage represents. Here's what I want you to hold on to. Remember that our Bible was first written in Hebrew for the Hebrew people who used story as a primary way of communicating truth. That might seem strange to us. You know, here in the West, if we want to say something important, we're going to write a paper or a speech or a sermon. And, you know, we might include illustrations or metaphors or stories to help support our main ideas, but the story wouldn't be the main idea. However, in the Middle East, as I understand it, it's just the opposite. The most important things are communicated through stories, stories that can be easily remembered and which can have great influence and persuasion. So as we open our Bibles and talk through this very important passage from Genesis chapter 2, please know that the details of this story matter. It's actually really right and good for us to linger on the way things unfold in the story and to consider what God is trying to communicate. So I'm delighted to have Mary Cassian back. Mary was with us back in season two, where we talked about the true story of Lazarus. It was, it is still one of our most listened to episodes on the podcast. Mary is an author, a speaker, a Bible teacher, and she has written extensively on this passage from the Bible and this topic. You can check out her book, Divine Design, which she co-authored with Nancy DeMoss-Wagamuth. This book is an eight-week study on biblical womanhood. I'd also love to call your attention to a movie that Mary appears in titled In His Image, Delighting in God's Plan for Gender and Sexuality. I thought this movie was so thought-provoking and compelling. And if you're wrestling with some of the ways that our conversation today goes against the grain of culture, I highly recommend you watch this full-length movie. In all of our show notes through this series, I'm offering you a list of recommended books and podcasts and this video. Okay, let's jump into our conversation with Mary Cassian about Genesis chapter two. Mary Cassian, welcome. It's so great to have you back. Good to see you again, Shannon. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be able to have this conversation with you. So what we're going to do is we're going to look again at Genesis chapter two, and we're going to just go through this story and see what we can understand about God's design. And we're going to particularly look at marriage. So let's go ahead and dive in. I'd love to read Genesis chapter two, verses seven through nine, and then 15 through 18. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil." Then verse 15, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. 
Okay. So what's the significance here, Mary, in these details? Like Eve isn't created yet and the man is put in the garden. What do you see there? Well, I think uh, what's fascinating about Genesis chapter two is that it's like a zoomed in slow motion version of what happens in Genesis chapter one. In Genesis chapter one, it's so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. And so Genesis gives the overview of creation and really focuses on, you know, the Lord gave male and female dominion over the earth. And so just how we are both created in God's image, male and female. And then verse or chapter two zooms in and gives a whole bunch of slow motion details. It's like a hockey replay. Uh, My son used to play professional ice hockey and they, you know, whenever he made a great play, there would be a, a replay Mm-hmm. And it would go in slow motion often, right. and you'd see a lot more details that you didn't see in the first time through. And so that's what chapter two is. And what's fascinating is we find out that the male was created first. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, that's interesting, especially because Paul uses that fact when he talks about marriage, he refers back to creation. And he says, you know, that the woman wasn't created first, the male was created first. And that's significant Mm -hmm. because in Hebrew culture, the firstborn had the responsibility of the whole family unit resting on his shoulders. Mm -hmm. It's also fascinating because Jesus Christ is called the firstborn over all creation. And so there's something about firstborn that's really important and there's, there's a responsibility that goes with that position of being firstborn that carries some weight and some responsibility. So that's, that's an important thing. And then, yeah, that, the fact that the man wasn't created in the garden, the man was created outside of the garden and then brought into the garden, put into this sphere of responsibility to work it. So I think that as we go through this story and see that this creates the foundation for a lot of who we are, what humanity is. This is when marriage is established, but it also creates the foundation for the story of Christ in the church. Mm. And I think if you don't understand that, you kind of get bogged down in some of the details, because I think that the whole story points forward. And we're told in Ephesians that the reason that we have male and female, and the reason we have marriage is to tell the story of Christ and the church, Christ and his bride. So the Lord knew that before he created male and female, he knew the whole story. And so in creating male and female, he was telling a story and pointing us to the greater story. And I think the the reason that we start out with the creation of the male and, and then the creation of the female and all these little details is because um, they are significant. And if you're looking at it through the lens of Christ and the church, it's like Jesus came from heaven and like established a new pod with the church through Mm -hmm. his death and Mm -hmm. resurrection and, you know, a new family in a sense, was was launched. A new place, a new family was launched when Christ died and rose again. And so mm-hmm. it's interesting. Some of it we're, we're guessing and we're kind of giving it our best 
take, you know, in terms of what the, uh, Mm -hmm. what the implications are, but it is so clear in the new Testament that marriage and male and female point to Christ in the church. So given that framework, going back and looking at the creation story, we can kind of tease out a whole bunch of things that, that seem to be extremely significant. Yes, exactly. And I think, you know, it, it would make a difference if God had created both male and female from the ground. And it, it would make a difference if God, you know, then gave them both the instructions about the tree. I mean, he could have, right? He could have. Right. Yeah. 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 Anyway, he went. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting that God puts the man in the garden to work it and care for it. And, um, you know, I think that we see that men draw their identity from work in a way that is slightly different than women. I mean, women also, women are also workers. It's not that women don't work, but there's a bent, I think, in the male, you know, when a, when a man is unemployed, it impacts him in a different way. God put him put Adam in the garden, told him he needed to work the garden and to care for it. In other words, to have responsibility to tend it and oversight to make sure everything was going well in the garden. And then he gave him the instructions about the tree. The woman wasn't even around yet. And Mm -hmm. why is that significant? Well, when you, Mm -hmm. when you look at it again, through the lens of this is really telling the story of Christ in the church. Mm-hmm. Right. Because Christ is our, our second Adam. Uh, so yeah, so let's keep considering the parallel of Christ in the church. Okay. Let's look at verses 18 through 24. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living, living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So God starts by saying, I'm going to make a helper fit for him. Then he has him name the animals. So Adam realizes like there's no animal that matches. Yeah, I I often think if I were God, I would have like brought woman in at this point because I'm sure she would have been a little bit more creative, like, you know, verbal (laughs) with the names. Yeah, no, the man gives names to all the creatures. um, And then there is no equal counterpart for Adam. No one who is a, an appropriate counterpart. Uh, And then, okay. So then Mary, could you read verses 21 through 24? Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Very good. So, what's surprising when we're reflecting on Genesis 1. 
God is saying, it is good. It is good. And then here we find the thing that is not good. That should stand out to us in this text. There's something that it's not good. It's not good that man should be alone. And then there's this thing that God says, I will make a helper fit for him. What do you think those words, what does it mean that, that uh, a woman is a helper? Yeah. A lot of that can cause the hackles to go up on the back of your neck (laughs) a little bit because, you know, you think, okay, well, there's the plumber and then there's the plumber's helper, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) The plumber's helper is the one who does all the dirty work and cleans Mm -hmm. up all the mess and does everything right. It's, it's like a, um, you feel as though that's a lesser position, but the word helper there is, is actually easier and it's used often of God, a God being our helper. Um, it's used of uh, the father, it's used of Jesus Christ, and it's used of the Holy Spirit. So it's used in multiple ways, in a way that that is extremely significant. So the help that is provided is not sort of inconsequential help, it's vital and important help. Um, I always like to ask, what is it that the woman was created to help man do? Mm. Because I think that that when you say helper, you're going, okay, well, helping with what? Mm -hmm. And I think that when we make a mistake, when we approach this passage, and we say that the woman's creation was just to help the man, it's like, well, what was she created to help? Like, what was the purpose? And so we think, okay, well, so woman's the helper, she gets to pick up the socks, uh, do the laundry, do the dishes, you know, do all the dirty work. I don't think that's what it's talking about in this passage at all. What was woman created to help man do? She was created to help man tell the story of God. She was created to help man tell the story of Jesus Christ. So she was a helper who was fit. And that's like corresponding or like mirror image to be able to tell this story in an appropriate way. So when you say helper, the help that the woman provides, the man is not the end point or the goal of that help, the goal of that help is telling the story of God is bringing glory to God is imaging God in a way that is true to who God is and to God's character and to help man tell the story of God and to help man be the image of God and taking dominion over the earth hand in hand in a way that reflects the character of God. So I think Mm. that's really important because I I think when we think helper, we think something lesser and uh, that's not at all what's, what's contained in this passage here. Absolutely. Um, So this word fit in Adam's response, he says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Why does it matter that, that she comes from the same DNA as Adam. Like, why does it matter to Adam that she is bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh? Yeah. Eve, the woman was drawn out of the man. And that's really interesting because Adam was created out of the ground, out of the dirt, and then woman was created out of man. So she is the same 
substance. So mm. a woman is equal to a man. She is the same substance. She is, is made out of the same stuff. And yet she's made differently because I think that, that a woman images God just for who she is as a woman and a, a man images God for who he is as a man. And you don't need to be married Mm, in order right. to bear the image of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can bear the image of God fully and completely as a single person. Mm-hmm. But when you have marriage, I like to use like a glass of water. So you look at it from the top and, you know, maybe it's like you have male and you're looking and a male totally images uh, image of God. And then you look at it from, uh, you know, another side and it's like you get a fuller, bigger picture when mm. you turn it around and when you add marriage into the equation. Um, mm. It's not, it's, it's not um, more, it's just a different angle. So you, you don't need a woman doesn't need a man in order to be complete. A man doesn't need a woman in order to completely image a God, we completely image him as individuals. And yet, it's a different angle when you have male and female, and it makes the picture fuller. And we do need each other in this world, you know, male and female need each other, I believe. So yeah, there's, there's a sense of sameness, there's a sense of togetherness, uh, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. But what Mm -hmm. I think here is so interesting. Also, if you look at it through the lens of Christ and the church, there was a quote by Augustine. It's like when, when Christ hung on the cross and his side was pierced and it was like the church was birthed. It was drawn out of him. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, in a sense, drawn out of his body with the shedding of his blood. And it's interesting here that the Lord God makes the male, like almost like puts them down to the ground as though he's dead. Right. And then Mm. he has to wound him in Mm. order to create the woman. He has to, Mm. you know, put his hand into his side and draw the bloody rib out. And, you know, we think this is all, I mean, I I have a medical background that wasn't like a sterile kind of, you know, magical sparkles. (laughs) When the Bible talks about things, it's raw and it's real. And so, you know, he pulls Mm. out a bloody piece of bone Mm. and he wounds the male in order to create the female Mm. from his side and then creates this amazing Uh, creature, this woman who is like Adam, but not like Adam. It's like a a counterpart. It's it's like a mirror image. Like, you know, it's the same stuff, but it's different all at the same time. Oh, Mary, that is so beautiful to picture God almost like this, this perfect man that he's just created the glory of his creation. And then he, he puts him down uh, and, and, and slices yeah. open his side and it's painful. I think Adam was probably, you know, had to heal from this, right? This, this was a surgery and it, it was painful and yet, or maybe not, I don't know. We don't know that because Christ, um, three days later, his side was completely healed up. So maybe that was the picture of Adam too coming out of the surgery. Obviously God could do that if he wanted to, but I love that image of, uh, in the same way that Adam had to be wounded for Eve to be created. Christ was wounded on the cross. His side was 
pierced. It was sliced open. And that was the beginning of the church. The church was born at Pentecost just after the resurrection. And, um, and so, yeah, we're meant to see these stories interwoven in first Corinthians 11, eight through nine, it says, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So what do we see about this from man and for man? What does that show us both in marriage and in this image of Christ in the church? Well, I think the fact that woman was created for, I think, I think speaks to the fact that, that woman is a very relational creature woman tends to even even in our bodies women are created to receive and to connect and and women are drawn to relationship um i think in the same way that men have a bent towards mm-hmm. drawing their their identity from work women have a bent towards drawing their identity from relationships um, mm-hmm. to a greater extent than men do so men do as well you know, men, um, uh, man's relationships are incredibly important, but a woman tends to move toward wanting to connect um, and created for, again, um, is not a negative thing. I think of uh, when my, my son got married and the church doors opened and my soon-to-be daughter-in-law walked in and she was beaming and walking toward my my son. And, you know, the look in his eyes was amazing and she was just radiant. And I think if you would have asked her at that moment, uh, were you created for this guy? And she would go 100%, you know, 100%. And that is a good thing to be created for. But the words can also be, I think, difficult because we tend to think when you're created for someone or for something that that someone or something that you were created for has the right of ownership or can treat you the way they want or is the boss over you and can run roughshod over you. And I think that that is the furthest thing away from this passage possible, because what this passage is uh, focusing on is the perfect fit mm-hmm. of male and female, and even in our bodies, the perfect fit, mm-hmm. perfect counterpart, and the union and the unity. And that's, we see that also bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So the oneness, and I think that when we're thinking again, through the lens of looking at it through Christ in the church, the overriding characteristic is they will be one as we are one, you know, Mm. uh, God says, and that Christ becomes one with the church. Uh, Mm. metaphorically. And our union with Christ, marriage tells that story, that union, that indivisibility, that togetherness that you're created for in the sense that it's a perfect fit. It's just perfect. And so that's that's what we draw out of this story um, Mm. in terms of just the unity and the oneness and the, the sacred togetherness and fitting together is, is what we're looking at here. Yeah. To the extent that we delight in physical intimacy, we should delight in this story that she was designed made for him and to fit him. 
Um, I love this quote that you used in your divine design book by Elizabeth Elliot. She says she's speaking to her daughter in a book that Elizabeth wrote called, let me be a woman. And she says, yours is the body of a woman. What does it signify? Is there invisible meaning in its visible signs, the softness, the smoothness, the lighter bone and muscle structure, the breasts, the womb, are they utterly unrelated to what you yourself are? Isn't your identity intimately bound up with these material forms? So what do you see in these physical, I mean, God formed their bodies. He formed Adam from the dust of the ground and he formed Eve out of this rib. Um, So what are we supposed to see in the ways that he formed them, these physical differences in our bodies? That Elizabeth Elliot quote, I think is really profound. I do think that there is there is symbolism even in our bodies, even in our biological sexual structures, where um, male is the one that moves toward woman is the one who welcomes and receives. And there's a sense in which that speaks to who we are as male and female. And obviously there are, you know, so many differences in terms of our personalities and in terms of who we are, all different shades and colors. There's no cookie cutters in terms of what that looks like and who you are as a woman probably looks somewhat different than who I am as a woman. And yet we're both women. Mm -hmm. And there's such a huge uh, debate right now. What is a woman? Like nobody seems to be willing or able to answer that question. What is a woman? You know, it's just like, (laughs) well, according to the Bible, a woman has a biological structure and was put together by God in a certain way to help tell the story of Jesus, you know, that she was given certain chromosomes, you know, every cell in your body is marked every cell. You can, you can change your body as much as you want, but you will never be able to change yourself at the molecular level of who God created you to be. Mm-hmm. And so in scripture, that's upheld as just a beautiful, glorious thing. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, as we go on through Genesis, we see in chapter three, how that union and the unity was, you know, as soon as sin came in, it messed stuff up really badly. There was fracturing right away in the relationship. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, male and female weren't like this, male and female were like this. Mm-hmm. And I think we've suffered ever since in terms of who we are as men and women and the male female relationship. I think that's the beginning of the battle of the sexes right back there in Genesis chapter three, but in Genesis chapter two, we get a picture of the beauty and the goodness of how it was supposed to be. And I think we live in a broken world. We live in a world where femaleness is not always valued. Mm -hmm. where women are not always valued, where women are abused, where women are sold for sex. There's been so much assault against who we are as women and as men. And sometimes we just feel so out of odds with Mm -hmm. our own biological bodies that God gave us. And so I think this gives us great hope. Genesis chapter two, looking at the story, they shall become one flesh. 
They're both naked. There wasn't any shame. There was a total, I get to be who I am and there's no playing games. There's no uh, shame in that. And there's, there's just a beauty here that in its purity from back in the garden, we've lost that we're broken from what God created us to be. And yet through Jesus Christ, there's hope of restoration and through Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ, through the story that we were created to tell, even in our own bodies, there is hope of, of redemption and of everything being made new. Mm. It is, it's a beautiful story. And yes, I think we're all reacting to the distortions that have played out since the beginning of Genesis three, there are so many distortions and yet it doesn't serve us well to not return to Genesis two and look at the beautiful design, uh, our origin story. Like what did God have in mind in the first place? And, yeah. and it was beautiful. There was nothing about it that would cause the man to recoil or the woman to recoil. They both delighted in their design. And so if we're going to recoil at the design, then we're not seeing the story correctly. So one more thing I wanted to notice with you, uh, is that Adam, when this woman is brought to him, you know, he's just had his little surgical <laughs> encounter with procedure. God, <laughs> his procedure, and he opens his eyes and she is brought to the man. And the man says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. We talked about that. They are the same. They're made of the same material. And then he says, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So what's the, you know, what's surprising that Adam is the one who names her. I mean, he's going to, he's going to give her the name Eve also in the next chapter, but Adam names her instead of God. Like what's the significance there? Um, and, and why does he say she's called woman because she was taken out of man? Well, there's a, a lot in that one little verse. Adam was God's firstborn and again, gave him responsibility before Eve was kind of on the scene. And Adam understood that. And Adam had the responsibility to name, and there's kind of like an oversight authority that goes with that whole naming thing. I mean, in scripture, you see that when people are given new names, it's usually by someone who has oversight over them or, you know, responsibility to look after them. Or Um, like parents naming their babies, right? Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I mean, if this were to happen, like in modern culture, like if, you know, I can just see the woman going, yeah, there's no way you're giving me a name. I'm going (laughs) to name myself. Right. But, but Eve doesn't seem to have a problem with it. She's she's delighted. And she's like, that's okay. Because there wasn't the fallen sin and abuse and ugliness. This was perfect. This is an amazing perfection, the way that God created it. The other thing that's really interesting in this passage is she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And it's a play on words in the Hebrew um, is ish and isha. So, you know, basically I am man-ish and uh, she is woman-ish. It's very, very similar. It's like an overlap in the words. And there's also, it appears that the Hebrew, the root is strength-ish means strength. And the root of the isha means softness. 
that appears to be the root of those two words. So they overlap, they're the same, and yet there's some difference there. And again, the focus is on the unity and on the oneness, uh, how well it all fits together. A man shall leave his father and his mother hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. So it's the unity and the togetherness and the fitting together and working together and partnering together and seeing this indivisibility. And we see this also in the New Testament in the passage that you read, you know, man is not independent of woman. Woman is not independent of man. We are in this together Mm -hmm. and we are in this together to bring glory to God and to tell the story of God. And I think when we lose sight of that, when it becomes, oh, it's about me or it's about male or it's about female. And when we lose sight about, no, this is about a bigger story. The reason it starts that way, the whole story of creation with the creation of a man and the creation of a woman and a marriage The reason history starts that way is because history will end that way. History will end with the story of a bridegroom and a bride and a marriage. Who is the bridegroom? The bridegroom is Jesus. Who is the bride? The bride is the church. What is the marriage? That is what we're going to see when when that oneness, when that union is consummated, when we come together in heaven, you know, at the end of time, and this temporary pictures are all rolled up, and the reality to which everything pointed will be realized. So that's why uh, we see Jesus when he's teaching his disciples. No, no, you guys, there's not going to be marriage in heaven in terms of one man marrying one woman. You've got that wrong. Marriage in heaven is going to be the marriage of the bridegroom to the bride, Jesus Christ and the church, because that's what this whole picture is all about. Mm. So will there be male and female in heaven? Do you think? I, I think so. I Mm -hmm. I think so. I don't think we're going to lose our identity. Mm -hmm. We're not, I don't think we'll become genderless. I think we're going to truly realize who we truly are. You know, Mary's going to become more Mary in heaven. Mm -hmm. I'll be Mm -hmm. who I was supposed to be. But Jesus said there's no marriage. And I think the reason is there will be no need for it. It's a temporary picture that points to something else Mm -hmm. that is eternal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Like, well, even- and you know what? Let me just make one point here, Shannon, mm-hmm. which is Paul's point when he says, you know, don't get stressed if you're not married. Mm-hmm. Because if you're single, that's okay. Singleness gives you more time. You have more time, you have more energy to direct toward the story to which marriage points. So in a sense, you're able to participate even with more gusto in the story of Christ and the church than someone who, you know, has a marriage where they need to attend to kids. Mm -hmm. You know, both are good. Both are amazing. But Paul's point is human marriage isn't the be all and the end all. The Mm -hmm. be all and the end all is the relationship Mm -hmm. to which marriage points. And that's the Mm -hmm. big deal. Absolutely. So we wouldn't really understand a father giving his only son if we didn't have fathers and sons. And 
And we wouldn't really be able to anticipate this marriage between Christ and the church if we didn't even understand what a marriage was, right? And Exactly. And and family, right? Family. How would we understand family? How would we understand loyalty and betrayal? How would we understand, you know, what it means to be faithful and unfaithful Mm -hmm. if you didn't have marriage? Like we wouldn't have pictures that are deep enough or rich enough. Like we understand, like if you're married and your husband cheats on you, you understand what unfaithfulness is and you understand what that does to your spirit and your heart and how ugly and awful that is. So these pictures, these, these images and relationships that God has given us, give us language even to understand who God Mm -hmm. is. The father son language, the Mm -hmm. family language, the faithfulness language, the love, like to understand Mm -hmm. what love is. All of these things are such great gifts because they help us understand God. Mm. Yeah. And so like you just mentioned the example of betrayal and marriage, praise God, I have not experienced that, but I can, I can imagine what would be lost if I did experience that. And so turn that around. Like if you haven't been married or if you haven't had a baby, like you can still celebrate it. Well, and here's, here's one more thing. They're told to go forth and multiply right in chapter one. So you have male and female, Mm, the union union of male and female does what it creates babies. Mm -hmm. So the union of Christ and the church does what? creates babies, creates babies, <laughs> spiritual right? babies, spiritual right. babies. Mm-hmm. And again, if you haven't had the physical ones, it's the spiritual ones that that's mm-hmm. the critical part, right? To which they point. So all of this gives us language and imagery and mm-hmm. um, concepts so that we can understand who God is and that we can understand the gospel, which is why Satan works so hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah against gender and sexuality and marriage uh, to, to destroy all that stuff so that it, mm-hmm. it really mars the imagery um, that we have that speaks to who God is. Mm, that's so good. And, and that's where I want to go next. Um, you know, so the story, the creation story concludes with, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So what's interesting is there aren't any fathers or mothers yet in this story. Like the author is saying, this is your origin story. And, you know, the original audience, they did have fathers and mothers and families and marriage. But the author is saying, this is the blueprint. This is what marriage should look like. This image, this is our origin story. How does this story, Mary, counter or correct the false narratives that we see in the world? Like the enemy, you just said, the enemy is coming after marriage and he just wants to undo anything that God has put together. So how, how does this story correct or counter these false narratives? Well, I think that, that it does give us the blueprint and it gives us an anchor in a sense, Mm -hmm. even an anchor for when we're struggling. I think there's so many people struggling now, gender, sexuality, marriage, and it's just going to increase. There's just going to be more. We're going to have more people who are, you know, really out of odds with their own bodies, out of odds with who God created them to be. And wrestling and struggling. And this is Shannon, where I think when we make a commitment to Jesus Christ, 
and we say, yeah, we're going to believe that his word gives us guidance. The Bible that we have are God's holy inspired words and that we can trust them. And so even when there's all these storms blowing, even when we are feeling out of sorts, even when we're struggling or wrestling with our identity, when we come to scripture and we hold it fast by faith, I think we start to discover who we really are. And I know that was the case for me when it comes to even womanhood or being a woman. I I was like a tomboy. I had five brothers. I like my way around a garage with power tools. That's me. I like to build stuff with wood. I'm not into traditional girly things. Mm -hmm. And, And I know for me, I made a commitment to Christ. And I know that for me, womanhood I I knew that God's design for women was right long before I knew it was good, you know, Mm -hmm. long before I felt it was good, but it was like an anchor. It was like, no, Mm -hmm. this is what I'm going to believe. Christ has shown himself to be real to me. And, and so I am going to believe his word more than I believe what I'm hearing from culture or more than I even trust and believe my own inclinations sometimes because Mm. they can be untrustworthy because they're so shaped by culture. And Mm. so I know that for me, when I stepped into it and said, yes, it became not only right, but it became good. And I began to see the goodness and the beauty of God's design. It is for our good. And how can we even love people if we don't point them to truth about who God created them to be. I mean, that's not, you're not loving somebody when you're saying, yeah, you just go do whatever you want and it's fine. You're okay. I'm okay. If truth exists and if God exists and if God has spoken truth to help us and to enlighten us and to show us the way, then if we don't, talk about that, or we don't point people to that, we're not really being kind, and we're not really being loving, you know, going back to God's design. um, I know the first time I read a book about womanhood, and I ended up pitching it all the way across the room. (laughs) It's the only book I ever threw across the room so violently, but it was good, because it challenged my thinking. Mm -hmm. And I began to say, God, what is this? What is what is true here? What, what does that mean for the way that I live? What does that mean for my marriage? What does that mean for the way I approach life and relationships? And so I think it, it is, it is an anchor. It's not a cookie cutter. Some people try to make lists of behaviors and, and that's not what the Bible gives us, but it does give us some broad brush strokes in terms of how this picture is supposed to work and how we can fit into it and how we can embrace it in a way that is good and healthy and for our good and for the glory of God. Absolutely. I mean, uh, our God apparently loves variety and uniqueness. So within our gender, um, there are two genders and within that we have great variety, but I think we're going to see in Genesis three, the fall and the brokenness of God's good intention. And so it makes sense that God's original design doesn't fit what we're feeling or experiencing, like that we would have to surrender ourselves and submit to what God 
originally designed. That makes sense because it's broken. We're broken. The whole thing is shattered. And so it makes sense that we wouldn't naturally be drawn to God's idea or his design for womanhood um, and his, his design for marriage. So what would change in our lives if we lived like the story was true? The name of this podcast is live like it's true. So um, what would change or, or how do we maybe live like it's not true? In a sense, there's always two ditches. You know, there's the ditch on one side where we just reject God's design. And then there's a ditch on the other side where we come up with these lists of what it needs to look like um, in everybody's mm-hmm. life, right? You need to be married, you need to have kids, you need to, you know, be a stay-at-home mom, you need to homeschool, you need to on and on the list goes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just man-made lists. You know, those are all good things, but I think how it makes a difference is going to be different for each woman. It may be a corrective in terms of how a woman relates to men or how she relates to her husband. Um, it may be just an attitude, you know, being in this kind of posture, headbutting against men or um, scoffing or scorning the differences that we see in men rather than appreciating them uh, for, for who they are. I'll just give an example. From my own marriage last night, I was thinking about this passage that we were going to talk about. And we go to a new church. I think I've told you, Mary, we're just getting assimilated into a new church. And so my desire is that we would create relationships with the people in our church, right? These are our brothers and sisters, and I want to know them as such. And so uh, we had a family over for dinner last night, and I called my husband on my way home from the grocery store and said, all right, they're going to be there at six o'clock. And he said, oh, I have a meeting at 830 for work, for his work. So Mary, this, mm, he knew it was on our calendar and everything in me sometimes wants to undermine his work. Cause it seems like his work just overtakes our lives so much of the time. He's a data scientist. He loves it. He just loves giving himself to his work. Um, He loves studying it. And he really has no need for relationships. I think he could live by himself for the rest of his life and he'd just be fine. He would would just be okay. And, And I am just made for relationships. And I always want work to be secondary, right? And so... So here's how it looked last night. I responded with softness. I love that you brought up that word, woman, softness, a soft response. I said, oh, well, um, I guess you could either excuse yourself or we could just try to wrap up before then. And so, but it it took me submitting myself to remembering like, no, I'm his wife and I am, uh, I'm made for him. But this whole idea of having this dinner, this is me drawing him into the relational side of the church. Right. And so, um, so we, we had this dinner and he was having such a great time. You know what he did? He excused himself for a minute and he went up and canceled his meeting. (laughs) And it was, and so this was, I think, us working together the way that we were designed, you know, his work is so important to him and it's important to our life. You know, it's our livelihood and it's, um, I I don't want to undermine his work. And I think Mm -hmm. so many times wives just roll their eyes at their, at their husbands and what they're drawn to. And, and yet I see him leaning on me to connect us, you know, with other people, with our kids. And even in our marriage, like, Hey, we haven't had a date night recently or, you know, that sort of thing. So I think living like it's true is, um, it's not 
like bucking against or defying these differences. It's more like asking, how can I reflect this original story in Genesis 2? How can I, how can I live in a way that um, shines light positively on this story that reflects the story and that um, it makes it a good story, right? Exactly. Uh, Anything else you would add to that? I love that, Shannon. And I think that it's true. Like it, it's so many little things. It's not even these big, big changes. It's, it's in the moment where, you know, the Holy Spirit will begin to impress on your heart. Do you believe this is true? And if Mm -hmm. it's true, how is that going to impact your behavior? And I think it does impact your behavior, you know, just even in terms of, of welcoming, um, Mm -hmm. you know, for those who are married, welcoming your husband, you know, or wanting him or for women who are um, single, if you're telling the story of, you know, union with Christ means multiplication and looking after new spiritual life like who are you pouring into where are your babies you know where are your spiritual babies and you know are those the girls on your volleyball team or at work or there's just ways that if we believe this is true it impacts us in a very real way day to day and but over time we gain a greater and greater appreciation for who God created us to be Mm, And I think our enemy goes after every facet of that. And so just knowing that you have an enemy, you live in a broken world. This story is exactly what your enemy wants to destroy. He doesn't want for you to reflect it. And so I think knowing that is helpful, um, but we flourish when we live like the story is true. Absolutely. Thanks for joining me for this true story of the beginning series. I hope you'll take some time alone with God and with your Bible open to Genesis 1 through 3. Drink in the true story for yourself, this true story that you're in. Let it reframe your story with the truth. To help you work through this narrative, I've put some tools together for you in my free Live Like It's True workbook. The workbook is particularly designed to help you work through the narratives or the stories in the Bible. It'll help you sort through how the true story of Genesis 1 through 3 refutes the false narratives in the world. You can find a link for your free workbook in the show notes, along with links to some of the various other resources we've been mentioning and recommending. Many of these resources are actually written by our guests in this season, including Nancy Guthrie, Mary Cassian, Courtney Doctor, and more. Are you enjoying this podcast? If so, would you be willing to rate and review? This helps us widen our reach and helps us to serve others as they're able to find the show. Also, if you have questions or ideas for me, I would love to hear from you. Thanks so much to my producer, Maria Lyons, and my son, Cade Popkin, for providing all of the music that you hear here on the show. And thanks most of all to you for tuning in. It is my joy and privilege to serve you. And now it's time to go live like it's true.